I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And if you need a Bible this morning, you can take the one that's in front of you and you will find Matthew 12 on page 817. As many of you know, we just finished the book of Jonah, studying the book of Jonah. And uh, next week, we'll start uh, the minor prophet Amos. And as we've done uh, throughout this series, uh, at different times, take an occasion to just pause for a second and to draw back and look at the larger redemptive picture to see how we connect uh, the message of the minor prophets to the whole of God's redeeming work, the whole of his redemption story in the world and certainly in our lives. And like we do every Sunday morning, we want to do that this morning. We want to learn about God's character. We want to learn about God's glory. We want to learn about God's love. And this happens best when we understand that the Bible is not just a group of sayings, different unrelated stories, a book of ethics, but that it actually is this amazing picture of God's redemptive work from the very moment that he created the world until he returns. And as we understand that more and more, we end up finding ourselves caught up in a greater understanding of his character, of his glory, and of his love. So follow along with me as I begin reading in Matthew chapter 12. We'll start at verse 38 and read through verse 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice and find security in the reality that you will hold us fast. As we sit under your word this morning, we would ask that you would speak to us. Remind us again of the great truths of your redeeming work throughout all of your word. Connect the dots for us that we might have a deeper understanding of your character, of your glory, of your love. Father, speak to us for your servants are listening. And all God's people said, amen. You know, recently as I've been uh, reading scripture and studying and teaching, um, I've realized I've become more and more aware of how my instinct is to see myself not as the bad guy in whatever story I'm reading in Scripture, but as the good guy or at least the neutral guy, right? And I don't know, I don't know if this is like this for you, but for instance, let me give you some examples of this. You know, when you read in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus talks uh, and gives us instruction on what to do 
uh, when a brother sins against you, you know, Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, go to him one-on-one personally. Don't talk behind his back. You know, don't gossip about him. Don't just write him off and forget. Figure out a way to reconcile. Go to him directly and, and let him know that he's sinned against you. And if he responds, great. If he doesn't, you know, go ahead and don't talk behind his back. Don't uh, gossip about him. Don't write him off. Go get another uh, person, another brother in Christ, sister in Christ. Go together to this person, confront them. And, you know, when I've read that for years and years and years, I've always thought, yeah, I need to do that. I need to, I need to make sure that I'm courageous enough to go to the person that sinned against me and to, uh, to, to make sure I'm not talking behind their back. I'm not gossiping. It only occurred to me recently, hey, Todd, why do you see yourself as that guy? Why don't you ever see yourself as the guy who has to have somebody come to them? I'm like, huh, yeah. Maybe there's something in that for the Lord that the Lord wants me to teach you in that, Todd. Or when we study the book of Jonah, I don't ever, I don't instinctively see myself as, as Jonah for a couple of reasons. I don't see myself as a great prophet, but at the same time, I kind of think, Oh, well, you know, if God actually spoke to me audibly and said, hey, you need to go there and you need to, you know, teach my word there. I don't, I don't think I would be as absolutely rebellious to like literally try to run away geographically from God. You know, like I wouldn't be that crazy. And if I were still, if I had some fish swallow me and I was in it for three days and he spits me out, I'm probably not going to go grumbling. I'm probably going to just be thankful I'm alive, thankful that God's done all this. I mean, certainly I'm not quite that bad as Jonah. And I don't know if I could say I'm the Ninevites. I mean, I'm not completely godless. So maybe I imagine myself as just one of the Israelites kind of observing what's going on with Jonah and the Ninevites. When we study the book of Amos, we'll find out that Amos was actually from the southern kingdom when Israel was divided at that time. And the southern kingdom was still obeying God. Um, and they were still kind of, you know, worshiping God in the right way. But the northern kingdom was, was completely rebellious against God. And God sends someone, Amos, from the southern kingdom to go to the northern kingdom to tell them to repent. And when we read through the book of Amos, the instinct's going to be, uh, until recently, would be for me to go, okay, well, I'm, I'm not the northern kingdom. I'm not completely rebellious against God. And I mean, I'm not Amos because I'm not, you know, this great man of God. I'm probably just one of the nice people from the Southern Kingdom who's seen what's going on with this. You know, and, and you could go on and on in different places in Scripture. And here, here we are. We go, okay, well, yeah, I don't, I don't, think, I'm the, I don't think I'm the Pharisees here. You know what I mean? Clearly, clearly the Pharisees here are just way out of line. I would never be that out of line. I would never, I would never go with that to Jesus. Probably who I am. I'm, I'm like the disciples who are standing by watching and seeing what's going on. I'm going to learn something from what I see Jesus do with these really, really bad guys. And that might be understandable for us to feel that way this morning as we look at the Pharisees, and particularly here in this passage. If we were to have read all of Matthew 12, you'd have seen that clearly the Pharisees in Matthew 12, I mean, they're just evil. They're challenging Jesus moment after moment after moment. In verse 2 of Matthew 12, they actually, they actually accuse Jesus of, of sinning. And then in uh, verse 24 of Matthew 12, they accuse Jesus of using demonic power in order to heal. Like that, he's, that what he's doing is actually demonic. Um, and in verse 14, we see that they begin to figure out how to plot to kill Jesus. 
Jesus, in response to this, at one point, verse 34, calls them a brood of vipers. And here, in this moment, they're not coming to Jesus in verse 38 and kindly saying, hey, we'd like to see a sign from you, which would be ridiculous because he's performed all these miracles, including casting out demons, including healing the, the, the people, the guy with the withered hand there at the beginning of chapter 12. He's done all these signs. Now, they're asking for him a sign of heaven because they want to discredit him. That's their desire here. I mean, clearly, they are evil here. Certainly, that's not us, Right? Certainly that's not us. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 39. Jesus says something very interesting. He says, an evil and adulterous generation. Let's just pause there. Adulterous generation. It's interesting that he accuses them of adultery. He doesn't accuse them of idolatry. He doesn't say, you know, you've put these other things in front of me. You know, adultery, adultery is to give our affection, our love, our commitment to, to someone else, to give, to give love to someone else other than the one we've been called to love through a commitment in marriage. To give our love to someone else rather than the exclusivity of the love that belongs to our spouse. Jesus says you're adulterous. You're pursuing another love. He's going after their hearts. He's saying, yeah, you look okay on the outside. But you're actually committing adultery against God. So brothers and sisters, I think here in the verses that we have before us, in this rebuke of the Pharisees, I think there is both a warning for us and also an invitation for us. A warning for us and an invitation for us. Those two things I want us to see this morning. First of all, what is the warning? What is the warning that we see here? Well, Jesus clearly is saying to these Pharisees and making sure everyone hears around, because he doesn't just say the Pharisees. He says this evil and adulterous generation. He's saying you're in danger of unbelief. You're not believing me. And you're unrepentant in your pride, in your arrogance. There's just certain things you refuse to repent of. And you're, you're in danger of an adulterous faith. Of a faith that on the outside follows all the rules, looks all right. But on the inside, your heart is actually being given in affection to other things or to other people. And of course, this is especially disturbing in light of their knowledge, that they, would, that they would be unrepentant, that they would lack belief, that they would be a, have an adulterous faith with all the stuff they know, with all their knowledge. And this is where I think the warning really comes home to us, where the warning doesn't just sit out there with the Pharisees back 2,000 years ago, but the warning comes right here in, into this room, into this sanctuary. Think about it for a second. These Pharisees, what did they have? They had the word of God. They had the whole Old Testament. In fact, if it says there in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees. So it wasn't just Pharisees, it was also the scribes. These scribes, they were admired for how much they knew God's word. People came to them to hear 
and understand what God's word said. They had God's word. Not only have God's word, they were religious. They were the most religious people of anybody anybody knew. I mean, their, their lives were, were orchestrated around the religion of here in the Old Testament that they understood. Now, they didn't get it all right, but they were religious and they had a morality. I mean, they may have had pride in their hearts and there may be a, an adulterous faith, but on the outside, as everybody looked at them, they looked like good people. Good people who were very religious, who had the word of God, who knew the word of God. Oh, don't you see it? Maybe it sounds like us. Maybe it sounds like us. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, there's going to be judgment on you. Because of your unbelief, because of your unrepentance, because of your adulterous faith, there's going to be a judgment on you. And it's interesting, he says, and this judgment is going to come, first of all, from the Ninevites, he says. Jesus says that the Ninevites, at the day of judgment, are going to rise up and say, what in the world? How could you not believe? How could you not repent with everything you had? All we had was this fire and brimstone sermon from this grumbling, bitter prophet. That's all we had. We didn't have the word. We didn't have the temple. We didn't have any of this stuff. We repented. How is it that you don't repent? How is that possible? And then Jesus says, the queen of the south, which we know from 1 Kings chapter 10, is the queen of Sheba is going to rise up at the ju judgment. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we read that the queen of Sheba, hearing about the wisdom of Solomon, came hundreds and hundreds of miles to travel, to just sit and be with Solomon, to just ask him questions. And as, as he began to speak with her and as, he, as she saw his court and listened to his wisdom, she was amazed. And in her amazement, in the middle of 1 Kings chapter 10, she starts worshiping and praising God. She proclaims the sovereignty of God. Here's this, this queen coming from hundreds and hundreds of miles away who, who, who knows nothing about the God of the Israelites, the God, the creator God. And yet when she sees what the wisdom Solomon has, when she sees the blessing that he has, her response is to be caught up into this God is great. This God is in control. This wisdom that you have is from this great creator God. You have been blessed beyond measure by this great God. And Jesus says that the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, is going to rise up against you Pharisees and say, you, you knew everything. You had the Old Testament. You had the creation account. You had Genesis. You had the prophets. How in the world did you not see the sovereignty of God? How in the world did you not see the salvation of God? How did you not see the Messiah, the provision of the Messiah? And then Jesus says to the Pharisees, right after he says, the Ninevites are going to rise up in, against, against you in judgment and say, hey, look, how did you not repent? Queen of the South, Queen of Sheba, she's going to rise up and say, you're condemned. How in the world did you not see this? And then Jesus says, as he looks at these Pharisees, something greater is here. You think Jonah 
is great, that the prophets are great, something greater is here in front of you. You think Solomon was great. You think King David was great. Something greater is right here in front of you. Be warned. All the prophets, I'm the fulfillment of all of them. Everything you ever read and studied in Jonah and Amos, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the answer to everything in there. Everything you saw in the provision of great kings, not just awful kings like Saul, but David and Solomon. Everything that you saw that was good and right, that what, what it meant to be a king, all of that. I'm the fulfillment of that. Don't you see, Pharisees? I'm the love you've always wanted. I'm the love that deserves your whole heart. Well, brothers and sisters, let's not just leave it with the Pharisees. What about our hearts? What about our loves? What other loves are we chasing after? Even though we know the truth about Jesus. I joke around <laughs> with my wife about this, but please know I'm serious. I, you don't need to come see me and maybe you do need to come see me and cause me to repent of sin, but I don't think so. I think this is just... Hear what I'm saying. Don't, don't read anything into this. I joke around with Lynn and I'll say, listen, I, I just, I don't have enough money or enough energy to have an affair. <laughs> I just don't, I don't even, I don't, I don't know how that happens. You know, like I'm, 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 I'm I got all the, all, my, all the resources I have. Um, I, one woman, that's, that's it. That's, that's all the, what I got. I don't, I, I couldn't even pull that off. Now, some of you think, well, Todd, that's terrible. You don't have an affair because you love her. I do. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth. But isn't there a reality as we think about the moments we've been adulterous in our faith? About the great energy and pain that it costs us. When we know that we belong to the Lord. And yet we pursue other loves. So much is drained out of us, right? So much tension, so much guilt, shame, so much just effort, so much running, so much to pursue an adulterous faith. And the warning is something greater is here in Jesus. Something greater is here. That's the warning for us, even as it's the warning to the Pharisees. Something greater is here. Well, that's the warning. What's the invitation? What's the invitation? It's the same thing. Something greater is here. Something greater is here. Now, literally, our ESV Bibles translate it in most places very well because it's, it's a word-for-word -word trans translation. And in, in the Greek, it does say something greater is here. But it says something greater than Jonah is here. So it's speaking about a person. So other translations, I think, can rightly translate it. Someone greater is here. And that's what Jesus is saying. 
Someone is greater is here than Jonah. Someone greater than Solomon is here. It's a person. It's not a thing. It's not a concept. It's not a religion. The invitation is someone greater is here. These Pharisees, they ask for a sign. Again, it's, you read the whole chapter, you read the gospel and you're like, what in the, <laughs> he's casting out demons. He's healing lepers. Is anybody in the crowd there going, what do you mean a sign? Like he's performing all this stuff. What? Why isn't anybody going, uh, did you see the demon thing you guys were talking about? Well, what they're doing here is they know, again, knowing their Old Testaments, that there's going to be a, a, a sign from heaven. So they're, they're asking Jesus to perform some kind of sign from heaven to prove that he's the Messiah. Now, they don't think he can do this. And they're trying to discredit him in front of his disciples and everybody who's listening. It's not a kind thing. It's not really a request. It's a way to trick Jesus. Show us a sign, a sign from heaven. Jesus responds, I'm not going to give you a sign except for one thing, the sign of Jonah. <laughs> Jesus knew that the uh, Israelites were fascinated, fascinated by the great fish and the deliverance part of Jonah. Just like we were when we were little, right? Like we just thought it was about a great fish and three days and three nights and then vomited it out on them. We're just like amazed by that. Well, the Israelites, even as these Pharisees, even these scribes are fascinated by the deliverance part. They're not fascinated, interestingly enough, they're not fascinated by the repentance of the Ninevites. That's not what caught their attention, even as adults, even as scribes and Pharisees. They're not fascinated by that. They're not fascinated by the, the mercy of God that's displayed in the book of Jonah. Now they're fascinated like little kids by this great fish and the deliverance that takes place. And so Jesus goes in on that and he says, only sign I'm going to give you is a sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly well, so the son of man. Now don't get thrown off by the three days and three nights. It was just some of you are like, wait, Jesus wasn't in the grave three nights. It's just the, the way that the Jewish people talked. Just meant those three, three days. It, it recognized three days. And he's saying, just like that happened, so that's going to be the sign of the Son of Man. Jesus doesn't do any more than that. But he gives them this picture. And then, of course, later, he goes to death on a cross, crucifixion. He's pronounced dead. He's put into a grave. He's dead. And then on the third day, he rises from the dead. He's witnessed by, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people see him. You notice that in the, in the first decades after the resurrection, there are a lot of there's a lot of arguments and accusations against the Christian sect, sect but no one argued against the resurrection because there were witnesses alive. So this takes place and I don't know if it causes you to wonder but sometimes when I read my Bible and I'm thinking about this I'm thinking okay so these these Pharisees and scribes are here and they hear this Jesus say listen there's not going to be any sign except for the sign of Jonah the 3 days and 3 nights then they see Jesus crucified, or they at least hear about it. 
They know he's dead. And then three days later, he is risen from the dead. There's all these witnesses saying that they've seen Jesus. And don't you wonder, like, how do they still not believe? How do they not? (laughs) There's all this evidence. And yet we know that not everyone believed. That isn't interesting that still happens today, right? Still happens today that even with all this evidence, maybe there's some of you in this room, even with all this evidence, this historical evidence, that even with all of that, even with the sign of Jesus being his death and his resurrection and even his ascension into heaven, that there is still unbelief. Even with all that we know. (laughs) But even if you are a believer, wouldn't it be true for many of us in here? I've done it before. Even though we have the sign of Jesus, we still find ourselves asking Jesus for some signs. Maybe not to believe in our, for our salvation, but just to believe that God is trustworthy. You find yourself saying, Lord, I just, need, I just need a sign that I chose the right college. I just need a sign that I'm supposed to stay at this college. God, could you just give us a sign that we chose, the, that this is the right school for us to put our kids in? Just give us a sign, an affirmation of that. Would you just give me a sign that, that this is the job I'm supposed to take or is, I'm, I'm supposed to stay in this job? Would you give me a sign that, that I'm supposed to leave this job? Would you just, would you give me a sign that this is the person I'm supposed to marry or, or would you give me a sign that this is not the person I'm supposed to marry? Would you give me a sign that my marriage is going to get better? Would you give me a sign that I actually can trust you to provide for me? I, I don't see how in the world you're going to provide for me, God. I, I'm in a mess. I'm, can you give me a sign that you're going you're gonna to do that? I just don't know if I can trust you if you don't give me a sign. Can you give me a sign that you're going to be with me, that you're here, that you're present? I just, I just don't feel it. Can you just give me a sign that that's true? We could go on and on. Brothers and sisters, do you know we already have the only sign that we need? We have it. Part of these verses were mentioned in our uh, assurance of pardon. But remember what Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. If he's given you a son, why would he withhold anything else from you? It goes on, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God right now, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No, 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We already have the only sign we need that you are loved and that he has purchased you and me as his dearly loved children. So the invitation is for us, even as it was for the Pharisees, someone greater is here. And in Christ, in Jesus, there's a greater deliverance than you and I can ever imagine. In Jesus, there is a greater forgiveness than you and I dare to think. In Jesus, there is a greater blessing than you and I have ever imagined. You see, this is, this is the message of Jonah, the warning and the invitation. This is the message. This will be the message of Amos, the warning, but also the invitation. Someone greater is here. This is the message of our whole Bibles, of all the prophets. Someone greater is here. And so great, so great is the character of this one. So great is the glory of this one. So great is the love of this one that we're going to stand and sing these, these truths. And can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me? For me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. Amazing love. How can this be that you, my God, would die for me, a Pharisee? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and truth of your word. I'd ask that you would sink these things deep in our hearts and apply them in the very places that we need them this morning. For you are a sovereign God who knows us. You are a great God who loves us. You're a God who brings mercy and grace to generation after generation, even to wicked and adulterous generations. That you might be glorified in the way that you love us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.